Hello, everyone. This is Noah. And I'm Simon. And welcome to the Resolve Podcast. We're your resource for all things mental health, academic success, and personal growth. Devoted to helping students thrive and build the resilience to succeed in school and in life. Okay, Dr. Michael Greenberg, thank you so much for coming to talk to us and our students on the Resolve podcast. Yeah, thanks for having me. I am fascinated with your work. It has been tremendously helpful to learn about your methodology, to speak with you, to understand the contribution that you're making to the OCD community with mental compulsions, compulsive rumination, all sorts of things. And I want to learn so much more about the way that you help people and the way that people listening to this can hopefully help themselves with OCD. So let, let's kind of dive into that. You have two parts of you, and I, I'll, I'll, I'll ramble a bit here, and then I'll let you take over. One part for people listening, Dr. Greenberg really helps people, and I think this applies to beyond OCD, to learn how to stop ruminating. Uh, and and deal with the difference between thoughts and thinking, uh, understand the cognitive capacity for choice that we have to direct our attention where we want to direct it, and th- that these are where free will also enters into. And that's almost very practical, very let's not analyze, let's be let's live our lives to the to the best that we can and not spend time in our head analyzing and repeating the same issues that aren't real problems over and over and over again. And at the same time, there's this rich psychodynamic part to your writing, which has just come out. I've learned a little about it, and I'm so interested to hear that's part about understanding the origins of a lot of the conflicts that take place with OCD on the psychological and emotional level, making sense of the past and giving attention to the content uh, and where it's being directed. And so this non-rumination, very practical with this psychodynamic whole methodology. Tell us a little bit about it and. I just want to open the floor to you to begin. Uh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's a correct characterization of my work so far. My work a few years ago focused on a cognitive behavioral treatment for compulsive rumination and revamping ERP, which means for those who are listening who are not in the OCD community, ERP is a specific type of cognitive behavioral therapy that we use for OCD. So revamping ERP or tweaking ERP um, to put rumination at the center of the treatment. So that was my work a few years ago. And um, my work more recently is on integrating, like you said, psychoanalytic or psychodynamic conceptualization and treatment with um, CBT for OCD. I think basically the best way to explain this is um, with a psychoanalytic concept. There's a psychoanalytic concept called an omnipotent fantasy. And an omnipotent fantasy means imagining that if only I do X, Y, Z, I can exert control over something that I don't really have control over. So examples of this might be, if only I eat the perfect diet, I can prevent myself from getting cancer. Or if only I am beautiful enough, I can get people to love me. Or if only I behave well enough, um, I can prevent my mother or father who is, let's say, emotionally volatile. I can prevent them from being emotionally volatile if only I behave well enough or inhibit my needs fully, whatever, whatever it might be. These are just examples. 
you could concept people with OCD, you could conceptualize the whole disorder on, on a level um, as an omnipotent fantasy that if only I am good enough, if only I inhibit certain aggressive, healthy, aggressive feelings enough, I can prevent loss or I can hold on to relationships. Again, we're talking very broad strokes. So I think that um, my relationship to CBT for OCD a few years ago was my own omnipotent fantasy. It was an omnipotent fantasy that if only we can get the ERP just right, if only we can do CBT the perfect way, we can totally treat OCD. And I think that um, and um, it, it's, it was sort of circular because I think it's true that when somebody's anxious, it's because they're ruminating. I think that's true. And I think it's true that if you stop ruminating, you stop feeling anxious in, in, the, in that moment, not sort of globally, not that there won't be things that come up that trigger you, but that in any given moment, if you were, if you were hypothetically to rein in the rumination and disengage your attention from the problem that's bothering you, that your anxiety level would go all the way down. And so since that's true, it was possible for me to say, well, look, if not ruminating gets rid of your anxiety, then if we don't ruminate enough, we can get rid of all of your anxiety and we can completely treat the disorder. Um, and it was easy to buy into that because if it's not working, if anybody's feeling anxious, then you're just like, well, are you ruminating? Yes, I am. Okay, so stop. And then it goes away. So it's sort of uh, circular. But I've come to think that uh, I think through my own experience, I came to understand that that wasn't the whole picture for myself. Um, and the way that I think about it now is it's sort of akin to if somebody were overweight because they overeat, and I'm not saying that everybody who's overweight is because they overeat, but let's say we have somebody who is overweight because they overeat. Um, you know, just saying to them, you know, the key to losing weight is to stop eating as much as you're eating, right? On the one hand, that might be literally technically true, but it's also really like asinine. Like it leaves out so much of the picture of like, well, why is this person compelled to eat? You know, what drives them to do that? Why do they have trouble stopping, et cetera? Um, and so that is sort of how I think about CBT for OCD now. I think that if we have someone who's overeating, who doesn't realize that they have the ability to control what they put in their mouths, they literally don't know that that's possible, then teaching them that they can control that is an essential starting point for getting on top of their eating. And I think when it comes to rumination, it's really a good metaphor because literally people with OCD, present company included historically, do not realize that we have control over what we're thinking about. We don't have, we don't realize that what we're doing is analyzing and that it's controllable and that we could stop. And so teaching people that they have control over so much of that, over their attention and over their analytical thinking is massively important. It's foundational and nobody's going to get better without that. But I think that focusing only on that left out a tremendous amount of what's going on and that we need to also understand the emotional factors that are driving this disorder. I would also, so that's sort of, that's how I came to the analytic stuff. Again, through personal experience and realizing that just telling myself, well, if you're anxious, if you're not ruminating, you're not anxious. So if you are anxious, it's just because you're not doing the not ruminating hard enough was, it, it, it was true on a level, but it also leaves out a lot. By the way, I would add, 
I don't think I'm the only one with an omnipotent fantasy or who had an omnipotent fantasy about ERP. I think the whole OCD community has an omnipotent fantasy about ERP. The reality is reflected in that meta-analysis that came out, I think, last year that showed that ERP is not everything. ERP is very helpful to many people. It is not, according to the research I've seen, all the way helpful to anyone. And it is also not helpful to everyone. So it has something to offer, but it's not the whole picture. And I think that as a community, we relate to it as if, if we could just get it perfectly right, that it would treat the whole disorder. And we don't actually have evidence that that's true. We don't have research that that's true. And I think when we call it the gold standard, even though, again, that's literally true, it is considered the gold standard. It's considered the best, most effective treatment that we have. It sort of uh, makes it sound as though it's perfect. It's the gold standard treatment. So people who are seeking treatment for OCD, they're imagining I do this treatment and I get all the way better. And that's not how there's not evidence for that. So, so before anything else, what's coming up for me in this conversation, doing this work is it's almost like an exposure to the whole community. You, whether you identify it or not, people know about you and your work and it, a lot of the times it provides a sense of hope, like, whoa, like I can stop doing this. And then you're kind of telling us yes and no. Yes and no. Meaning I think that learning how to not ruminate can change somebody's life. And I know that from personal experience, from patients I've treated and from notes that we get from all over the world, from people who have implemented this treatment on their own and are saying, I feel better than I felt in my entire life. So not ruminating is massively helpful. We're saying that it's not the whole picture and that there are these underlying dynamics that unfortunately, people with OCD like me, we want clear solutions to problems. We want quick fixes. We want to know this is the problem. This is how you fix it, do it, and we're done. And unfortunately, that's not, that's not reality in most cases and also in, in this case. Now, so we're balancing between, I'm not saying, oh, you're never going to get better from OCD. No, I'm saying you can get so much better for OCD. And honestly, by treating these underlying dynamics, by treating the emotional factors and the relational factors that are driving the disorder, you can actually get so much better. What I'm saying that's disappointing is that it's not a quick fix, at least not the whole picture, right? You can get a lot better pretty quickly, but you can't get probably all the way better very quickly. And it's a process and it's not perfect. And worst of all, for people with OCD, you're probably going to need help. Because, because one, the obsessive compulsives, we as a tribe, the obsessive compulsives, we like to do things ourselves. And we like to imagine that we have everything we need to solve our own problems. And for many of us, it is hard to accept that like, we're going to need to look outside of ourselves. It's it's hard to process exactly what you're saying. I think I'm understanding. It's almost like the, part of OCD is a desire for complete control over the environment in in the world. And I think that's too. I think that's too broad. I think it's um, a, a fantasy of controlling certain certain things. things right. No, everybody accepts so much in their life that they don't control. But the parts that are really pathological are about control, and therefore. We, we gravitate to the treatment that says, here's how you do it. And this is control. And this other part, the psychodynamic part, in many respects, represents what's unaware, what's unconscious, what's not in our control. That's really scary. Yeah. Um, so let me, let me actually clap. Yeah, let me add please. a note that I, I added in the articles, and I think it's very important to add. People with OCD are constantly looking for evidence that our obsessions are true. 
And so I think anybody listening to me, they're like psychoanalytic, psychodynamic, they're like, oh my God, they imagine that that means I have these dark underlying impulses. I really am a pedophile. I really am going to kill people, whatever it is. So let me be clear. That is not at all what this means. We're saying that healthy, natural feelings that we all have present conflicts for us because of things that have happened in our past. And they get expressed in these metaphorical ways as symptoms. And if you're interested in learning more, you know, you can read the article. I can give a couple of examples. Maybe let me give a couple of examples. Is that okay? Please. Okay. So here are some examples of. But before that, can you actually also yeah. make sure you tell us what was missing? What is missing in just this narrow picture of OCD, the way that you are known to be? I mean, you've always integrated things like the core fear, which is also super helpful. What's what's missing? Yeah, I think the examples could illustrate Perfect. that. Here are, just, I, here are some examples of like a case and then what might be a part of it that we might not see. Let's say we have somebody with relationship OCD who um, is constantly worried that they're in the wrong relationship, okay? So you could teach them how to stop ruminating, but implicit in their symptoms is a worldview in which there are right things and wrong things. And that there is a right person and a wrong person. In other words, the, the obsession itself reflects that this person lives in a world of idea, ideals, okay? And so part of the work for this person, probably not just in this relationship, but probably in general, is having a more realistic view of themselves and others and things in general that things that are real are not ideal. Everything has pluses and minuses. And that to the extent that one thing is more ideal in one way, it's less ideal in another way. And that we make choices. That would just be you know, one piece. Or for example, maybe this person has trouble feeling ambivalent feelings towards a loved one because when they were growing up, for some reason, it was threatening to feel ambivalent feelings towards their parents whether that was because the parent was fragile, whether that was because the parent was narcissistic and responded by retaliating, um, whether it was because they had split, a split means they like had one parent who they saw as good and one parent who they saw as bad in order to preserve having one good parent. And so they're worrying about being in the wrong relationship might also be about, I'm not saying every case is like this, it might also be about um, being able to experience and acknowledge ambivalent or disappointed or critical feelings towards someone they love. And so just teaching how to, how someone, how to stop ruminating, is not going to address conflicts around ambivalence and loving relationships or a sort of overall worldview of things that are ideal and things that are devalued. Okay. That's one example. I'll give you a couple of others. Let's say we have, um, someone who has harm OCD. Um, and they have intrusive thoughts of, let's say, killing the baby. What might be going on, and again, I'm not saying every case is the same, okay? And people with OCD, again, we're looking for a quick answer. So we're like, oh my God, that's me, or what box can I put myself into? Every case is different. But let's say we have a parent who's afraid of killing the baby. What might be, we can teach them how to stop ruminating. We can do exposures to being in the room with the baby and the knife, to being at home alone with the baby, to diapering the baby, whatever it might be. And that's really important. I'm not devaluing that at all. The, another thing that might be going on here is this might be a person who has trouble feeling angry or aggressive feelings towards a loved one, right? Just like we said, that first person maybe has trouble feeling ambivalent, critical, disappointed feelings towards a loved one. 
maybe this is someone who is scared to feel anger at a loved one, again, for whatever reason that was growing up, right? Or maybe this is a person who also believes, going again to worldview, that you're not supposed to have hateful feelings towards somebody you love, that that's not acceptable or that that's not acceptable from a parent to a child, right? Or perhaps that was what they experienced as a kid. Maybe they came from a family where anger was not acceptable, obviously got played out in different ways, but consciously it wasn't acceptable. Or maybe they came from a family where actually the parents were uh, abusive and horrible and in a disidentification, they wanna be nothing like their parents and so being angry at their child becomes unacceptable. Either way, we get a person who feels like it's not okay for them to acknowledge, to feel or acknowledge rage towards a kid, which we're all going to feel because we all feel angry feelings in all relationships. And so this might manifest as an obsession over whether I'm going to kill the kid. But what it's really about isn't an underlying wish to kill the kid. What it's really about potentially is whether I can feel normal natural, healthy feelings of anger towards somebody I love or towards my child that everybody feels. Those are well, just two examples of. So uh, the way you described it in one of the articles is it's a force. Um, and uh, tell me if this is, if I understand this, you have a force, you have a, a feeling, an, an, an no, emotion I, that you're feeling. Mm -hmm. It's like a force. You do not want to feel that. You don't want to feel anger or aggression. So your brain almost dramatizes it to the most extreme form. I want to kill this person so that you're being afraid and, and therefore scared of that. And I want to run away from that force and emotion. So I won't, if it's so intense and so beyond me in terms of the content of the force, I will be able to safely be like, I can't go there. I can't do that. Is that... I, I, I think you're capturing a lot of different ideas there that are, I think there's truth to them. Okay. I think... I don't know if I'm an expert on how defenses operate, but one, the, the bottom line is that there is a feeling, a natural feeling of anger that is unacceptable, but that it is like a force in the sense that it needs to get expressed somewhere, but because it's unacceptable, it gets expressed in this or discharged in this um, disguised metaphorical way through this ruminating about whether I'm gonna kill the baby. Okay. Now, again, to the obsessive compulsive listening, who says, did he just say that because I can't accept my anger, I'm going to end up killing the baby? No, he did not just say that. He said that because I can't acknowledge that feeling, that feeling gets represented symbolically by my concerns, by my fear about killing the baby. Not that I'm actually going to do it. Nothing in this is saying your obsessions are real okay, or true. Okay. So that functions in a bunch of different ways. It takes me away from the feeling. Now I'm not feeling it in my body. I'm, feel, I'm you know, distracted by my ruminative thoughts. I'm no longer with the baby feeling angry. I'm now in my own head dealing with myself and my OCD, right? So it functions, I think, in a bunch of different ways, um, which some of which you were alluding to in your description, but I wouldn't present it's myself as it's, expert it's on unconsciously how these things work. But the bottom line is, is that part of maybe improving this and improving the symptoms of OCD, not gaining control and mastery and perfection is learning not to ruminate. The other part is learning to completely feel the natural feelings that are coming up and letting them be there totally. Yeah, I mean... I I, I'm, I'll take a little issue with the words completely and totally because okay. I don't think any of us is, you know, Beyond talked about like 
Jan was a famous analyst and he talked about how there's just a limited amount of affect that we could tolerate and mostly we defend against most of what's going on. So nobody's saying we're going to like feel all of our feelings, but on a sort of more practical level, yes, the idea is that we would be able to acknowledge how we're really feeling, to allow ourselves to feel what we're feeling and to not be scared of those feelings and to not worry that those feelings are going to translate into behavior or that those feelings are going to lead to us losing people that we can feel angry, that we can feel disappointed, that we can have needs, that we can acknowledge that, let's say our boundaries have been violated. That's another good example that I like to use of how having an analytic perspective on what's going on can sort of um, bring things into the picture that we would otherwise have missed. I've noticed that a lot, if not all, again, based on my limited experience, okay, I, I can't speak to every case. Based on my experience, I think contamination cases usually, um, are people who feel like their boundaries are violated in some way, in some way, you know, whether that's uh, physical boundaries, you know, their privacy is disrespected, emotional boundaries, somebody's intrusive, whether um, sexual boundaries, uh, whatever it might be. And so if you're just treating the contamination, you might really be missing most of what's going on. So, um, at least in my experience, learning to think about things analytically, meaning psychoanalytically, has really shown me things that are going on that I would otherwise not even have seen. One of my associates who, um, was, who was originally just cognitive behavioral and then trained in psychoanalytic treatment as well, she said it's like growing a third eye. It's like you just see that it's like you see things that are going, and that makes it sound like very spiritual and mystical. It's not. It's saying you're like you like clock things that you didn't clock before. You're like, oh, like this person's perfectionism is not just about perfectionism. This person's perfectionism is happening in the context of a family where her mother favors the other sibling and hates her. And they're hoping unconsciously that if only they could be perfect enough, they could be loved as much as the sibling, for example. And so if you're just treating behaviorally what's going on and you're not thinking about the emotional context, you can really miss really glaring parts of the picture. And I'm not saying like, uh, you know, I'm better than anyone or I'm a genius, I can see these things. I'm saying I personally, when I didn't have the analytic perspective, didn't see these things either. And having gotten more training and supervision in that perspective and learn more about it, now I can see these things as well. And how does that help? Can you help? I would love to learn. How about I mean, those examples? Right. Right. So when someone, let's say someone does part of the work, the ERP, the CBT part, and so they get control in some level on, on their compulsive behaviors, what also gets freed up? What is the, what is the transformation that can also happen when their awareness of this whole other dimension that you're bringing to the picture arises as well for them? I think that it can help in multiple different ways. I'll say the main one and then I'll talk about, I can mention some other ones. I think the main one is that the assumption from a psychoanalytic perspective is that behind every symptom is a feeling that's not being felt or acknowledged. And so the idea is that if I can feel that that's what produces the symptom, we have a symptom because there's a feeling that we can't feel, that we can't acknowledge. So from an analytic perspective, and again, and, and I should say the psychoanalytic perspective is very rich and very complex and very broad. And I'm not an expert by any means in it. I'm a student. And so when you're talking about the psychoanalytic perspective, anytime you boil things down to something simple, you're leaving a lot out. So I just want to put that out there. I'm talking in 
broad strokes so we can you know understand something today but nobody should think this is like the whole thing simply put behind every symptom is a feeling that's not being felt or acknowledged and that's why it gets expressed as a symptom and so from that perspective if we can feel and acknowledge our feelings there won't be a symptom or there won't be a drive towards that symptom so if i can just hate my baby sometimes then maybe i won't need to have for that hate to be transmuted into these obsessions over killing the baby, right? Or maybe if I can um, allow myself to be disappointed in somebody I love, then maybe I won't need to go back and forth between do I have the right person or do I have the wrong person? Maybe I can come to terms with feelings of disappointment and understand that that's normal and natural in relationships. So the, I mean, that's on the, or maybe let's say with the contamination and boundaries, Again, I can acknowledge my feelings about it, right? That's what's essential. Maybe it can also translate into communicating about boundaries, being more assertive about boundaries, right? So it can help on all, so many levels. Sometimes you can translate it into exposures, like for example, setting boundaries. It also, I think, helps to restore a person's sense of coherency and agency. You know, anybody who's read my stuff knows that agency for me is like the, the main principle in treating OCD, that here is a person who feels like they're out of control and you're showing them actually you do have control over your behavior. I think that the more a person understands the meaning of what they're doing, why they're doing what they're doing, where this comes from, what this is about, I think the greater their sense of agency as well. Like if I understand that I go disinfect things when I feel like, when I feel like my boundaries have been violated, then I'm going to be able to make that connection and feel less like what is happening to me? Why do I randomly have this urge to disinfect everything? Yeah. I just, a lot of it, I'm just trying to digest. I don't, I don't, I don't want to say too much. I, I appreciate this. Yeah. I, it's a lot to digest. I and mean, like, I'm first of all, like these are not, most of this is not my ideas. Most of this is the psychoanalytic perspective. It takes a lot of time. It's not something you can read one article about and digest. Like personally, I've been in analysis for several years. I go to analytic supervision, meaning case consultation twice a week with an analyst. I did a year long course in psychoanalytic theory. You know, I read on it like, uh, and I'm still, I think I'm like in fourth grade psychoanalytically. Like there is a lot to learn. This is not, CBT is nice for the therapist because you can be an expert in a couple of years. Like you can be real, you can know everything. It's really, it's, the, we talked it about- It fits well with our society's model of things. I think it also fits well with the obsessive compulsive personality that wants to feel like they have, like they know the right treatment and they have all the answers. And uh, the psychoanalytic perspective is um, not, does not facilitate a sense of omniscience. Like I stepped out of the CBT world where I had been trained to the high heavens into a world where I like was looking up at these people who know infinitely more than I do. And I'm really just beginning to, to delve into it a little bit. One personal question on that. What just what's that been like for you? You 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 were like a master and are a master in a certain domain, and now you, you've made a decision to be vulnerable and a rookie and a beginner. A sense of omniscience and a sense of omnipotence, which I'm using in a psychoanalytic term, not right. Like thinking you know more than you do, thinking you have more control than you do, are distortions of reality. And I, one of the sort of broad strokes in analytic treatment is being more realistic, seeing yourself and other people realistically. If you can see things realistically 
and feel your real feelings about them, you don't have to sort of constantly defend against different things. You don't have to constantly rationalize why things are as they are. So I think the more realistic you can, the more realistically you can see yourself and others in reality, the, the easier. And so um, feeling like you have all the answers when you don't, that's hard because then you have to constantly figure out why you don't have all the answers or you have to constantly imagine that you have an answer you don't have. And just accepting that there's a whole world out there of stuff you don't know um, is humbling, but it's also easy because it's true. Like it's, it's not hard to accept that because that's reality. And it's also, it's also hopeful because it means like there's always more to learn and like you're not limited to what you already know. I think it's, it's, it's speaking on behalf of myself, but also again, through my work, I understand that like, this is also representative of the obsessive compulsive tribe in general. Like there's a real sense that we have all the answers in ourselves and that whatever we know is everything there is. And um, it gives us a sense of being able to take care of ourselves and that, you know, that of self-sufficiency, which is probably where it originates for many people. But it's also, um, it's also quite isolating. It means that like, no, you can't get help. You know, there's nobody out there who has an answer you don't have or who has a suggestion or, or a perspective that you don't have. And um, it's actually, I think, really comforting to find out that there are people who know a lot more than you do, you know, that there are answers you don't already have. It's very, it's, it's reality. And it's also, I think, comforting. So that's what it's been like for you almost. Like I that, that's... Process. I mean, again, like from an analytic perspective, it's not one thing. Yeah. It's lots of things, you know, like... <laughs> <laughs> Like, I'm like yeah. I, I'm, I don't, I don't only have positive feelings about it, um, but I'm grateful for it. And it's definitely enriched my work. I would say, you know, most of all, it's, it's helped me feel better. It's really helped me to address issues that I didn't even know I needed to address, which is kind of the nature of the, the nature of the beast because they're by definition unconscious. And so you don't see them because they're just the air you breathe. Psychodynamic work, the work that you're talking about doesn't lend itself very well to self-help doesn't lend itself very well to here's what I'm going to do to work on and improve yes. my life. Yeah. Um, it's by nature, a, 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 a relational practice. Good point. And yeah. that, I, mean, I think there is some amount you can do for yourself. There is some amount you can read and learn and whatever, but largely, largely, I think you're right. Yes. You need help. And what, what comes to mind for me for that is when working through mental health issues and trying to make things more accessible and affordable, this kind of treatment is almost um, off out of bounds uh, in terms of the average person. There is truth to that. There's a lot of truth to that, a lot of sad truth to that. And there are also some there are also some options that people have for lower fee services in Los Angeles, where I am, there's the Wright Institute and there's the Maple Center where they provide low fee services and also train people in analytic work. So I don't know what exists in the rest of the country, but certainly here there are opportunities. Um, and also um, another possibility, and this doesn't make it accessible to everyone, it's still going to cost something, but it can definitely reduce the fee is if somebody is really invested in doing really intensive psychoanalytic work, 
then they can be what's called a called a control case for someone who is in analytic training. And so then the fee would be significantly reduced. And that's that is how I started analysis. So today you're working, and I know that you're in progress. I know you're mentioning you're in grade four in this in, in this area. So, but you're still writing about this and you're you're working hard. What do you want to, how do you want to communicate to all the people like myself? providing ERP, also integrating, and I know we can get into that a little bit, also integrating acceptance commitment therapy, which actually advocates, uh, just on a very side note, you know, the diffusion of, you know, creating distance from thoughts is really a tool in my mind to stop ruminating. But part of that as well as feeling the range of feelings, emotions, that's one of the, you know, one of the pillars. Can I say one thing yeah, about, please. about ACT in terms of analytics? Please, please. Something crucial about the analytic approach is that you differentiate between natural feelings, defensive feelings, and things you're afraid of. And so just saying, boiling, like trying to act tries to simplify things and trying to simplify analytic work and saying, oh, you just need to accept your feelings is absolutely incorrect. Because for example, we don't want you to accept your symptoms. We don't want you, meaning on some level, you need to accept them in the sense of accepting that that's the reality right now, but we don't need a person. That's not what it means to accept your feelings. You don't need to accept the thought that you want to kill your kid. What you need to accept is a feeling potentially that you're not even feeling, right? Maybe you're not even feeling your anger towards that person. Maybe you're not even conscious of your boundaries being violated. So to just say you need to accept your feelings, or maybe you're feeling tremendously guilty about something, but maybe that guilt is not a primary natural feeling. Maybe that guilt is a defense. Maybe that guilt is you imagining that you could have controlled something that you couldn't have controlled. And so to just say, we want you to accept your guilt is really potentially missing a lot of what's going on. So the psychoanalytic approach is nuanced and specific, and it is not, you cannot boil it down to just accepting your feelings. Ah, it's hard. It's hard on many levels to, I, I'm just trying to be so open to this. It's just hard on so many levels from the, the hope that people can, can heal, like, you know, psychoanalytic, I'm sure there's deeper origins and deeper roots to where these things came from. And I'm and sure deeper other healing and deeper, deeper healing, healing and other cultures have their own long-term history of this kind of stuff, but it's also relatively new in human history. Um, so it was all therapy, right? And, and yeah, and people before did used what they could. And, and so like, it's just, it's hard for me to wrap my head around, especially, you know, me where I'm involved in ancient, we ancient systems of, you know, Jewish practice. And, and it's like, there's, 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 we have so many tools to improve our life and this new kind of tools come into the, to the fore, which kind of says, this is all really, really, really complicated in a way that doesn't lend itself well to, quick fixes. To, to easy answers and quick fixes. Not that all these other systems do. There's there's also depth and richness to all these other things, but this in particular is just a challenge. Um, where to start? I want to ask you, uh, in my brain, my brain's telling me now, well, that for most people, it's going to take years of therapy. You're doing, you've been doing this for years often when you meet with an analyst, it's frequent sessions for someone that wants to heal and wants to do the, the you know, the very structured non-rumination 
response prevention as well as, hey, teach me all this other stuff. Help me, not because I need full control and it's all about getting better in this neat cookie cutter kind of way, but just because this is something else that could be really helpful. What's the timeline to see something, to see some awareness? Do you have clients that you can see in kind of a short-term sense, including the dynamic stuff? So first of all, yes. Like there is such a thing as short-term dynamic work and like not, not analytic work or psycho. First of all, let's say I'm using the term psychodynamic and psychoanalytic interchangeably. They can be used interchangeably. Some people use them in different senses. I'm using them as synonyms. Um, doing psychodynamic work does not mean that you have to be in treatment for years. If anybody wants to see a good example of short-term psychodynamic work, watch couples therapy. Have you seen couples therapy? Wait, like watch it as in watch an, a practitioner? Yeah, it's a documentary oh, series. Oh, it's a documentary. It's not watch, just watch couples therapy. Like there's a- it's Oh no, something. it's on Showtime. It's on Showtime. Okay. If you want to get a sense of what really amazing psychodynamic work with an analyst looks like, watch couples therapy on Showtime. Even though okay. granted it's couples therapy, but it'll still sort of like disabuse people of their like ideas about what this looks like, you know, about like the cold, distant analyst sitting, whatever. She's an analyst and she's amazing. Um, and it gives you a good sense of what, of what analytic work might look like. Fine. So um, I, you asked if it has to be long-term to see benefit. The answer is no, absolutely not. You can definitely do good short-term dynamic work, especially if you're with someone who really um, is familiar with the issues you're dealing with and can sort of quickly identify wh what's going on. I want to say that with a grain of salt, which is part of the analytic perspective is not knowing and being open to individual, you know, like to finding out and not immediately having an answer. But nonetheless, somebody who sees a lot of the same type of cases pretty frequently can walk in and say, you know, for example, contamination cases, we're thinking maybe this person's boundaries are being violated, for, for example, just like a sort of quick assumption about what's going on. Um, so the answer is it doesn't have to be long-term. And we're also not saying that a person has to, um, can't get better without, we're saying it's sort of open-ended. Let me actually back up for a second. Even though we've said this, I'm gonna reiterate it because again, the obsessive compulsive often speaking from, for myself, but also you know, in light of my work with many members of this tribe, we do see the world in sort of idealized and devalued terms. And so I think that somebody listening to this who is obsessive compulsive is very uh, prone or likely to hear, oh, so he's saying ERP is not good, psychodynamic is good. And that is not what he's saying. I'm saying ERP is tremendously important and extremely helpful. And I believe rumination-focused ERP is extremely helpful, can change somebody's life in a relatively short time. For many people, not for not promising quick fixes, but like for, for many people, it can give them a set of skills that can help them feel tremendously better in a very short period of time. And I'm saying it's not the whole picture. And I think that in addition to that, to feel progressively better, maybe progressively is a better word here. There's additional help from addressing underlying emotional and relational patterns and dynamics. In other words, I'm saying both are important. I would recommend that anybody who has OCD start with ERP. Obviously, I personally think they should start with rumination-focused ERP, and I have issues with traditional ERP, as, as we know. 
Um, but regardless, I think somebody with OCD should start with the behavioral treatment. And even in the analytic community, there's an acknowledgement. Malin says this, Nancy McWilliams has said this. There's an acknowledgement that analysis doesn't work for OCD. First, like the symptoms take on a life of their own and they need to be treated behaviorally. And kind of everybody knows that, okay? And I know that, and I'm not saying anything to the contrary. I'm saying, go treat those symptoms behaviorally. That's gonna help a lot, but there's also limitations to how much it's gonna help. And then I think it's time to bring in the analytic dynamic work to work on the underlying dynamics. Ideally in my fantasy or in, in my practice, this is what we do. And in my fantasy, this is what everybody would do. We would integrate, like in our practice, we're integrating from the beginning, but in a world where that doesn't exist or where like, you know, we cannot see everybody, we're a very small practice. In a world where there aren't people who integrate, I would say, see your behaviorist, do some good CBT, learn how to not ruminate, do your exposures, get rid of your symptoms, mostly as much as you can. And then in a world where you can't find somebody who does both, then consider going and working with somebody really good. Obviously, there's always a range of competency. Work with somebody really good who's psychodynamic or psychoanalytic. I think that's a great plan because some people might stop at, I just want to have quality life. I know yeah. that I'm not going to be perfect, but I'm, and I don't, and I'm okay with that. I just don't want to suffer the way I am and spend four hours a day doing, mm -hmm. sitting in my head or four hours a day sitting mm -hmm. in my, in my bathroom cleaning. And behavioral treatment can help you with that. Behavioral and we don't, and no one's minimizing that because that's life-saving. It's life-saving, life-saving, yeah. life-changing. Nobody's devaluing ERP here. Right. Correct. But um, there's more, but there's just more. There's, there's more help to be had and there's deeper healing to be had. And I, I would think, say that's hopeful, actually. I would hopeful. say that that's hopeful. When we tell people that ERP is perfect, we're saying if ERP hasn't worked for you, well, sorry, that's all there is. And yeah. my perspective on ACT, which I know, okay, I have a, a like, my perspective on ACT is that it's, it can sometimes be used as, I'm being careful how I say this, I'm sure there are people who use it differently. It can sometimes be used as like a coming to terms with the fact that this is as good as it gets and that you have to just make your peace with your symptoms, learn to distance yourself from them, et cetera. And I don't like that. I don't like it. This is as good as it gets, especially because it's not true. There's additional healing and additional help to be had. And I wish for people to go pursue it. And when we devalue, you know, the, the OCD community in many ways is similar to OCD people, maybe because many of us who treat OCD have OCD, I don't know. It could, I don't know whether that's the reason, um, but like their relationship to ERP and psychodynamic is very split. It's very idealized and devalued. And so we're telling people like, no, psychodynamic bad, and I understand where that comes from because there are people who have been in years long analytic or psychodynamic treatments and not gotten help. So I agree, start with behavioral, right? We need to start with behavioral and psychodynamic is not gonna get rid of your symptoms for most people. Um, but we don't need to devalue psychodynamic overall. Like, oh, that's gobbledygook and it'll, you know, it's wrong. I mean, this also it re relates to people who think that OCD symptoms are just like broken brains. Like, which again, I understand the, I don't agree with that at all. And I understand that the motivation there is to destigmatize. but what you're doing is you're undermining people's sense of agency and you're undermining people's hope that they can get better. So again, just like the person with relationship OCD coming to terms with the fact that the person they love is also disappointing in certain ways and being able to hold that, we need to have that relationship with these modalities also. ERP is amazing. 
and changes people's lives and is limited. It is limited in what it can do. And psychodynamic is deep and rich and can help address these emotional dynamics, but probably isn't going to help with your symptoms, at least to begin with. It's probably not going to get rid of, all of, a, of, a life, of a lifetime full of symptoms that have taken on a life of their own. Both of these things have pluses and minuses. They are helpful and they have limitations. And there's even these two together, ERP and dy dynamic, maybe there's you know, other senses of meaning, existential issues that can't be solved by either of them. And in other words, nothing is perfect. Nothing is perfect, but this it's is again, another whole that, layer of healing that could happen. Is yeah. is basically what we're we're at what we're getting to. Um, I really appreciate this perspective, and I really I think you've made it abundantly clear that this is not the be all and end all, and that you are a student, and you're not trying to you're you're doing, you're still doing your, you are a rumination focused ERP practice that include that is a has a dynamic richness and dimension to it. And you're just doing your best right now to put this all together. I think that you said in your articles, and it was almost like you never met Milan, but you're trying to do continue this sort of integrative approach that perhaps he was, he was getting at. Um, he was calling for, he was calling for my last question, and then just a, a word of hope, but the last question that I have for you more technically is how has the community responded to you? Um, what are people saying? Are a lot of people agreeing with you? What's been the experience like to kind of come out of, come out of the, I don't know what to say out of the woodworks yeah, with this. Say, coming out of psychoanalytic really does feel like coming out of a closet. Uh, me, please. It does, it does absolutely feel that way. <laughs> um, um, what's the response been? Um, you know, I have to imagine that, that there have been people who are very upset by it. who think that talking about psycho, when I presented at IOCDF, uh, I presented on integrating psychoanalysis and CBT at IOCDF two or three years ago. And, um, I mean, there was like some real hostility. <laughs> um, so I have to imagine that those people who felt hostile towards that, I have to imagine they feel hostile towards this. I don't um, participate in the OCD specialist forums or Facebook groups. Um, so I don't know whether there's been a reaction. I'm also not sure whether, I'm not sure who, you know, is reading it. The only feedback I've gotten um, about it from patients has been, um, positive, you know, I get notes from people who have read it and find it helpful and that's, you know, beautiful. Um, but I guess the people who, anybody who's upset has not let me know. Yeah, but that's okay. Okay. And I don't think you're the kind of person that would, would stop if, if people were, you're just, you, I, I it sounds like you're just, you are just trying to help people with OCD and you are just trying to get all the possible understandings that are, that are going to contribute to this. And I'm so, so appreciative of that. And I hope to learn much, much more on the topic. Just anything last minute that you want to say to the people listening, especially students that are maybe learning about these ideas for the first time. Yeah. I'll speak to students. Like there's a lot of either or in our training. Like you either go to, you're either a behaviorist or you're analytic and never the twain shall meet. And um, it's, it doesn't have to be that way. And like, by all means, try to round out your training and try to get different experiences that can um, enrich your perspective and your ability to help people. 
Okay. Thank you so much for being with us. And of course, a disclaimer. This podcast and all of our mental health learning and educational content is not therapy and is not a replacement for therapy. Please seek professional help if needed. Go to www.resolve2vs.ca to get the support you need. And that's all for now. We hope this was helpful in some small way. If you like our content, please subscribe and give us a five-star review wherever you are listening. Make sure to keep updated with all of our content on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter. And of course, come check us out at www.resolve, that's resolve with two Vs, dot CA, to learn more about how our services can support your needs. Till next next time, time, take take care. care. Theme song for this podcast is done by the band Mokuse no Maguro in their song Midnight Empty Street. <laughs>